0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Awakening in China by Leda Hong Fincher. On the eve of International Women's Day in 2015, the Chinese government arrested five feminist activists and jailed them for 37 days. The Feminist Five became a global cause celeb, with Hillary Clinton speaking out on their behalf, and activists inundating social media with hashtag FreeTheFive messages. But the Five are only symbols of a much larger feminist movement of civil rights lawyers, labor activists, performance artists, and online warriors, prompting an unprecedented awakening among China's educated urban women. In Betraying Big Brother, journalist and scholar Leda Hong Fincher argues that the popular, broad-based movement poses the greatest challenge to China's authoritarian regime today. Through interviews with the Feminist Five and other leading Chinese activists, Hong Fincher illuminates both the difficulties they face and their joy of betraying Big Brother, as one of the Feminist Five wrote of the defiance she felt during her detention. Tracing the rise of a new feminist consciousness now finding expression through the Me Too movement and describing how the communist regime has suppressed the history of its own feminist struggles, Betraying Big Brother is a story of how the movement against patriarchy could reconfigure China and the world. Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Awakening in China by Leda Hong Fincher, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Let's ensure that the history of American socialism doesn't repeat as farce. That's one reason that Max Elbaum, my guest today, wrote Revolution in the Air, 60s radicals turned to Lenin, Mao, and Che, an account of the little-remembered New Communist Movement that defined the American anti-capitalist left of the 1970s. Elbaum recuperates many positive lessons from the era as well, including the commitment to third-world solidarity, anti-racism, and the disciplined organization of movement cadre. But he also details how adherence to the fine print of whatever particular political line was deemed correct substituted for building connections with actual mass movements. And he tells the story of how this very elevation of political line above all else, combined with the lack of internal democracy and a volunteerist belief that fervency and orthodoxy alone would create a revolutionary vanguard, led to disastrous isolation and sectarianism. Elbaum argues that many of the new communist movement's mistakes might have been avoided had there not been this enormous generational split between old left and new one purpose of this book and this interview about this book is to help today's newest left learn positive and negative lessons alike from those who preceded us revolution in the air was first published in 2002 at the dawn of the bush administration a time at which the left had long since been seemingly destroyed as a historical project and when fragile emergent dreams of another world being possible were driven out by the drums of war. The new paperback edition, with a foreword by Black Lives Matter's Alicia Garza, is being read in a new context, where everything, both beautiful and dystopic, once again seems plausible. Before we get rolling, this podcast is only possible because you, our listeners, Support us at patreon.com slash thedig. Making this my full-time job and my producer's part-time job requires a lot more time than just doing these interviews. It involves, in other words, a lot of prep. Currently, I'm prepping to speak with Barbara Ransby, Kianga Yamada-Taylor, Quinn Slobodian, Adam Tooze, Melinda Cooper, and many others. And my producer is preparing a lengthy set of interviews that I've done with Andrea Longchu and Marissa Brostoff. I'm also setting up an interview on the unfolding disaster in Brazil. We love doing this, but we can't do it without your support. Plus, $5 a month gets you access to our newsletter. $10 gets you a copy of either Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism or Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity. $20 or more, and I'll send you a bunch of left-wing books. Please contribute what you can now at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. In other news, as I mentioned last week, I had meant to run my interview with Shama Sawant today, but my wires got crossed, and it's running next week instead. Same difference, but just wanted to clarify that for any of you super close listeners out there. Thanks. And here's Max Elbaum, the author of Revolution in the Air, out now in a new paperback edition from Verso Books. Max Elbaum, welcome to The Dig.
1: Thank you. Pleasure to be here.
0: I think that many leftists who came of age from the 1990s on might not even know that the new communist movement existed, but it really was the center of the radical left, the American radical left in the 1970s. To start off, can you give an overview of what the movement was, what it grew out of, the, the various sorts of organizations that it comprised, and, of course, how it conceived of what it was trying to do?
1: The late 60s, uh, there was a major turn toward revolutionary visions, revolutionary politics among people who had been active in the key movements of the 1960s, uh, the anchor movements of which were the freedom movement, particularly the black freedom movement, but the freedom movement in all communities of color, and the anti Vietnam War movement. Uh, so those were the twin axes of 60s protests, and especially after the assassination of Martin Luther King, people have been active in those movements, uh, many of whom came to the conclusion that the system couldn't be reformed, uh, and you needed a revolutionary change. And it was a cohort shaped by what was going on in the world at the time, which was the rising of what today is called the Global South, then we called the Third World, and national liberation movements in the Third World. Uh, against Western imperialism and white supremacy. Uh, In the late 60s, there was sort of a flowering of revolutionary movements, revolutionary organizations of uh, broad types. Uh, The Black Panther Party was probably the central reference point, but you had Uh, La Raza Unida Party. You had the Young Lords uh, somewhat modeled on the Panthers. You had a number of different collectives and organizations coming out of the Asian American movement of the time. Uh, And then you had the uh, principally white, overwhelmingly white Students for a Democratic Society, SDS, uh, in the late 60s, turning toward revolutionary politics. And then you had various small socialist groups from the old left, uh, and you had the left press, uh, especially the Guardian newspaper, which was the most widely read radical publication
0: of the period. Not to be confused with the UK Guardian that some Americans read today. Correct.
1: The National Guardian was formed in 1948 uh, as part of the Progressive Party fighting the Cold War and the turn to McCarthyism, Uh, It continued through the 50s and into the 60s, and in the mid to late 60s, it made a turn and began to identify more with the new left and radical movements of that period. So when people turned toward revolutionary politics out of those organizations, uh, especially again after 68, uh, there was an attempt to find a more coherent strategy and political program, and, uh, of course, a huge influence of the time were the left-led national liberation movements, particularly the Vietnamese uh, Revolution, the Cuban Revolution, uh, China, and the Cultural Revolution, and uh, movements in Middle East and in Africa, Amilcar Cabral leading the PAIGC in Guinea-Bissau, And a large cohort of the people who turned to revolutionary politics in the 60s identified uh, with those movements, those parties, feeling that they were on the front lines of the world-class struggle of the time. So, of course, I mean, every current on the left grew in that period, Uh, you know, traditional pro-Soviet communism, Trotskyism, anarchism, revolutionary nationalism. But a plurality of people who were radicalized in the late 60s, especially uh, from the freedom movements and communities of color, identified with what broadly was a third world oriented version of Marxism. uh, And a cohort within that, I felt the need to build a new revolutionary party. So the new communist movement was the Party building component of people who looked toward uh, third world revolutions as a center of gravity of the struggle at that time. Um, We're influenced by the Chinese Communist Party, the views of Fidel and Che, Cabral, the Vietnamese. So, people, uh, what we thought we were doing (laughs) was building a new revolutionary party that would be oriented toward. giving priority to anti-imperialist international solidarity work and the central component, uh, an alliance between, it was usually formulated as an alliance between the working class as a class and the freedom movements and communities of color. Uh, We thought that the 1960s upheaval would come around again and that we needed a new vanguard. To provide better leadership than had been provided by the left groups in the 1960s, um, so that was just, that was the model. Um, there were a proliferation of organizations uh, in the early 70s. There was groups: the Revolutionary Union, the October League, the Communist Workers Party. Uh, later, others: the League of Revolutionary Struggle, Line of March. Uh, there were a the whole proliferation of groups. The Guardian adopted the new communist movement point of view in the early 70s. Uh, they were never able to unite into a single organization. And uh, over time, there were some hopes of that in the early 70s. Um, Oh, I should also mention the Communist Labor Party, which grew out of especially some of the work of the League of Revolutionary Black Workers in Detroit. Um, there was some hopes of a unified party coming out of that in the early 70s. But by the mid-70s, uh, the different groups were competing with one another.
0: So there's a lot to get into here. And the place I want to start is solidarity with, with third world people engaged in armed struggle against U.S. imperialism was really alongside fighting domestic racism at the center of the communist left of that era. And by contrast, today, internationalism seems to me to be something that's really too absent on the left. Can you say some more about the role that foreign struggles played in shaping the American left of that era and more broadly Or theoretically, what the new communists assessment that American racism, capitalism and empire building were all deeply and foundationally interconnected. And how those three things were all challenged first and foremost by third world insurgents, both at home and abroad, what that assessment meant for their politics.
1: Well, it was a period, uh, you know, as as a lot of people write about it, it was a revolutionary nationalist period. It was uh, at the same time that it was a period uh, that seemed to be uh, a revival of socialism or communism and Marxism. So uh, this, in retrospect, uh, one could say it was the later stages of the global decolonization movement. But the struggles for decolonization, starting, you know, that began in the early 20th century, but picked up steam, especially after World War II, and then the Bandung Conference of the non-line movement that gave rise to the non-line movement, uh, that this was uh, a movement uh, in challenging uh in challenging Western domination that was dominated by people who identified with socialism and communism. And the national liberation movements were shaking the empire, as it were. And if you lived in the United States, in that period, uh, the Vietnam War was an uh, an overwhelming phenomenon that every single person faced in some way I mean, anyone my age, if they didn't go to Vietnam themselves, knew people who were in Vietnam. There were half a million U.S. troops there at its height. Two million people from the United States roughly were deployed to Vietnam at one or another time. So that was one focal point of mass attention, mass action, and mass radicalization. The other focal point was coming out of the Civil Rights Movement and the uh, Montgomery bus boycott, the sit-ins, uh, voting rights struggle. I mean, it was the Civil Rights Movement that broke the back of McCarthyism, put uh, political protest back on the agenda. Uh, it had the moral high ground in the country. It was an inspiring movement. And uh, as that movement progressed, more radical strains within it uh, gained influence as it became clear and clearer to its participants, many of whom even from the beginning knew this, but it became clear to masses of people that it wasn't simply a struggle for legal rights, that there was a structural character of U.S. racism that had been built into the foundations of the country, country built on genocide of Native Americans and enslavement of people of African descent, and what's now become a mainstream position that the black labor essentially was central not only to building the wealth of the United States, but to the whole structure of the Western capitalist system. And those two poles, the anti-racist pole, particularly as led by the Black Freedom Movement, and the anti-war, anti-imperialist pole, focused especially on Vietnam, began to intersect. People from SNCC went to Africa, met with people in the African liberation movements, the role of Malcolm X in talking about the global struggle. Uh, So we began to, the young radicals at the time began to think of the world in terms of a global majority that was driven by people of color. uh, Overturn in the key fights against racism and empire, out of which also grew the women's movement, the LGBT movement, and the other progressive social movements at the time uh, so those were imprinted on us uh, a, partly out of um, our own experience and then by the uh, writings of the time by the intellectual Output. I mean, this was the year of Malcolm's autobiography, France Fanon, uh, you know, writings of uh, Mao Zedong, Cabral came and spoke in the United States. I mean, so there was a whole complex set of ideas. And that affected our politics both in terms of um, what we felt. we had to do our our responsibilities here in terms of solidarity, but we also saw those movements as inflicting the biggest damage on our common enemy. So we saw them as the leading force within the ability to weaken the system that we were fighting against. There was a sense that what would happen was that the breakaway from the capitalist path of development in the third world, that in some way Those forces would align with the countries that had already broken with capitalism. There were big debates about China and the Soviet Union, but in broad strokes, people saw those as an alternative uh, to varying degrees. And that uh, what would happen would be that the squeeze on U.S. profit margins, as and the U.S. ruling class power in general, as more and more of the world broke away. Would lead to the ruling class intensifying its attacks on the working class and another round of resistance that would be even more powerful and class based, working class based, than the 1960s movements. And that was the notion that we needed a revolutionary party to intersect with that objective motion.
0: One drawback of this orientation, which obviously has a lot of advantages and real concrete advantages that I think that the left today could really learn a lot from. But one drawback is that making the political situation in foreign countries the movement's central point of reference also, I think you argue, papered over the movement's growing isolation from the American political economic reality that it inhabited, Um, writing about the political education within the new communist movement, you write, quote, matters were left at the level of restating general formulas about the need for a dictatorship of the proletariat with occasional additions about continuing the revolution along the lines of the Chinese Cultural Revolution or praise for Cuba's use of moral rather than material incentives. Movement propaganda would point to gains made by workers, peasants or women in China, Cuba or North Vietnam but little was said about the structure of a socialist U.S. How is it that these American revolutionaries became so distanced from the American political world in which they operated?
1: Uh, There were a lot of flaws in that uh, outlook on the world that I just described. Uh, It seemed experientially uh, untargeted. And it had a plausible set of arguments for it. In fact, there were even people in the U.S. ruling class that were worried about the world unfolding that way. But it was a misassessment. And we misassessed both the strengths of the national liberation movements, their ability to create new societies. We underestimated the problems that went with economic underdevelopment. Uh, We underestimated some of the structural flaws, or not just some, but many of the structural flaws in the countries that were trying to build socialism. I mean, by and large, we were much less sympathetic to the Soviet Union than we were to China, but we overlooked flaws in both. And we also had a uh, pretty mechanistic notion of what was going to happen in the US working class. Uh, So we were right about the fact that there would be a period of intensified attacks on the US working class, but we were wrong in our simplistic predictions that this would automatically lead to a motion to the left within the US working class. Um, And, uh, you know, I think there was. Um, it's not like we were completely divorced from studying U.S. history and looking at the patterns of U.S. history. There were quite there was some good work done, and particularly on the history of the way today, what people talk about racial capitalism, and there was some good work done on that uh, and on some other things. But I think. Uh, we never succeeded in grasping some of the counter trends that pushed the U.S. working class into a more conservative place, or at least elements of a more conservative place. And we had adopted some more fundamentalist versions of Marxism that led us to underestimate uh, the allegiance or the grip uh, that bourgeois democracy has on uh, people's consciousness and people's political activity. So, you know, we came of age at a time when the political system seemed blocked and people were uh, denouncing presidents and electoral work didn't seem like it would lead anywhere at all. Uh, So we assumed that that was a consciousness that millions and millions had learned already and that we could uh, skip over that.
0: In retrospect, it is easy for it to seem naive that these young people believed that conditions for an American communist revolution were in the making in the 70s, because as we now know, with the benefit of hindsight, pretty much the opposite was in the works. But before we move on, I just want to emphasize this historical context that you lay out in the book that these people were living within, that you were living within, and your comrades were living within, which was this context of third world revolution abroad, mass student black uprisings at home. And in that context, it's just quite understandable that they thought they were living in a revolutionary situation. As your title puts it, revolution was in the air. There was the black freedom movement, the anti-war movement, huge uprisings and riots in cities. The, The Vietnamese were defeating the U.S. Army. Che was calling for two, three, many Vietnams and in 1968, the U.S. two-party system for the left was utterly and totally discredited when Humphrey won, meaning that in the even in the face of widespread opposition, both major parties would be led by pro-war candidates. Um, so in a sense, even though you argue that the new communists ultimately become pretty disconnected from their their historical context— they initially are really deeply grounded in it.
1: I mean, I don't fault us. I don't beat myself and my other comrades up uh, for being wrong in 1968, 69, 70, 71, 72. I fault us for not being able to uh, accurately gauge the changes that were taking place in the early to mid-70s. I mean, we should have realized by that time Uh, The changing economic conditions, the the ebb within the uh, different movements that had inspired us in the 1960s, uh, some of the challenges that were becoming clear in terms of new kinds of divisions and problems within the working class, uh, and just even the scale of our own operations. I mean... Uh, you know, we went from movements and organizations that had thousands and tens of thousands of people to revolutionary organizations that numbered more like in the hundreds and into the low thousands. And we didn't catch those danger signals and readjust as quickly as we should. And that was somewhat connected. I mean, it was connected to our the imprint of such powerful experiences that we had in the late 60s it was also connected to that we lacked a certain historical perspective our relationships with people from the old left who did have their shortcomings but tended to have a longer term historical view Uh, and uh, you know so i think that was uh, when we failed to adjust uh, quickly enough and by the early 80s most of the uh, surviving groups that that didn't uh, fall apart or explode or shrink badly or become you know uh, really sectarian or cultish by their 80s most of the groups that remained that were sensible we did readjust by then but uh we were uh, too weak to gain another round of momentum, and it would have required a different kind of ideological reexamination of some of our founding principles uh, that we just weren't able to do as fast and as smoothly as necessary.
0: One important thing that your book does is complicate conventional understandings of how the 1960s played out and ended, particularly this prevalent good 60s, bad 60s narrative that foregrounds the story of SDS and its weatherman faction and the emergence of the weather underground, that foregrounds that above everything else going on. The the conventional story, as told by Todd Gitlin, you write, is pretty much that the white left became too extreme and then collapsed. And I think there's another conventional good 60s, bad 60s narrative as well that applies that maybe to the the black left and says, you know, this there was the— the the good years of Martin Luther King, the bad years of black power. Explain how your story complicates the conventional wisdom about how the 60s ended.
1: There's a couple elements. I mean, one element is uh, the idea that the early 60s movements were sort of pure and moral, and the later 60s movements were uh, all about violence and, uh, you know, sort of uh, scheming or something like that. And which then alienated moment, the good
0: hearted American people who the, the good early sixties people had won over.
1: Yeah. And and part of the I mean there's there's a bunch of things that I tried to do to complicate that uh narrative. I mean one thing is to point out that you know, today everybody embraces this. Well, almost everybody. We're in a different situation with the Trump era, but for many, many years, everyone embraced Martin Luther King as uh, the early Martin Luther King, the loving Martin Luther King, the nonviolent Martin Luther King, and the idea that racial equality and law was a good idea. So it's pretty easy to paint the early 60s as the fight for racial equality and law as sort of noble, and of course, everyone supports that. Uh, You get into the struggle that became moved to the fore after the uh, passage of the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, which is the structures of institutional racism and societal racism.
0: Housing segregation and school segregation, the things that actually challenge the built-in advantages that racial capitalism provides to 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 certain segments of white society.
1: Exactly. I mean, and people put it in slogans like, uh, you know, uh, the right to buy a hamburger is great at a lunch counter, but if you don't have the money to buy a hamburger at a lunch counter, there's still a problem. And so issues of the economy and the structure came to the fore um, that became an issue. Uh, Another problem with that narrative is that narrative focuses uh, on the sectors of the late uh, period, either among whites or among African-Americans or other uh, people of other racial and national backgrounds, on the small numbers of people who did turn out of various desperations and uh, mistaken ideas to small group armed violence and implies that the later period was all characterized by a sense of small group armed violence. In fact, uh, that's not the case. The vast majority of people who became revolutionaries in the late 60s went into some kind of direct organizing, trying to build a broader base in the working class and communities of color. But in U.S. society and U.S. culture, You know, there's a a fixation on violence, and that's what gets the media. And there's also a sort of role for the outlaw, the individual outlaw standing up against the society that has a certain social recognition. But people who organize collectively uh, to move things forward through direct action on a mass scale, you know, this this is communism. This is beyond the pale so there's a, an obscuring of what was actually going on among the revolutionaries of the late 60s and into the 70s and a focus on a very narrow uh you know uh, uh, there's a kind of cherry picking that goes on that makes it seem that plays into the good 60s bad 60s and then among some it's basically a conservatizing notion that you know society wasn't really as bad you know once You know, if we could only go back to the days where we passed the Civil Rights Act and the Vietnam War was over, you know, then there'd be a little tinkering to do, but basically everything is fine. And people who wanted to push well beyond that, uh, you know, were uh, misguided and caused a lot of problems. And some advocates of the good 60s, bad 60s have basically fallen into that kind of world outlook.
0: As if Martin Luther King was not viciously attacked, marching, you know, through the Chicago area, calling for open housing, <laughs> as if the civil rights movement uh, did not face massive resistance at every turn.
1: Absolutely. And we see today, I mean, the you know, this week especially, people are talking about white male rage and white male grievance. And to think that that was not a massive factor— Uh, Perhaps even more of a factor in, well, not more of a factor, but a factor in a different way uh, back in the mid and late 60s when white supremacy was challenged and then when women began to challenge male supremacy. I mean, that was a massive social force then. And it's taken an extremely nasty turn now uh, and very widespread and naked because there's big demographic changes, among other things. But that was a big part of the rightward turn in the 1970s.
0: Another major factor in the decline of 60s social movements that the good 60s, bad 60s narrative obscures is this huge shift that takes place in U.S. imperialism with the Vietnamization of the war or what was called changing the color of the corpses, which really undermined anti-war mobilization because so many fewer American troops were being killed. And the same thing, thinking through that helps us understand, I think, also why in the midst of this never-ending, permanent-seeming war on terror, that there's never, during the war on terror, been a real, truly sustained mass anti-war movement, thanks to the rise of the all-volunteer military and of drone warfare. This since the the high point of american casualties in vietnam american imperialism has managed to get along without requiring anywhere near that level of american bloodshed that initially elicited such strong protest in the u.s and that was and i think continues to be a huge political victory for american imperialism
1: absolutely absolutely and you made the point earlier beyond that uh the anti-war anti-militarist international side is probably right now the weakest component of the resistance to the white nationalist driven trumpist uh alignment and bloc uh and You know, it's directly related to what you just laid out about the sophistication of the empire in learning how to conduct its wars in ways that maintain as much support as possible at home. I would also point out that the Vietnam War was televised, I think, between the time I was about 18 until I was in my early 20s. I saw somebody killed every day on television. It was broadcast on the 6 o'clock news. Now those wars are hidden. The bodies are hidden, the killing is hidden, uh, as well as what you said about the deployment of troops. And it is a major problem. Now, I don't think anti-war, anti-militarist movements are going to take exactly the same form that they did in the 60s. But a progressive and a left movement that's vulnerable, that can get swept in behind the national security narrative... Uh, uh, or their version of patriotism, is vulnerable, is not going to be able to build a durable progressive movement. And, you know, although the left-led movements in the third world have largely receded and been defeated and are in crisis, it's still true that the greatest concentrations of misery in the world and human suffering are concentrated in the global south and that toll is directly related uh to western imperialism not exclusively western imperialism there's a lot of bad guys out there but uh in terms of who's done the most damage over the last 50 or 100 years
0: or even a little longer edit.
1: yeah <laughs> um yeah.
0: so so we've assessed we've reassessed the conventional wisdom as to why mass movements in the 60s receded um And it wasn't that the new communists didn't realize that the mass movements were ebbing. They knew that, but they thought that there would be another upsurge at some point not too far into the future in mass protest and that it was essential to build a revolutionary vanguard party to guide that mass movement once it emerged. This was a lesson that they took from the years leading up to the Russian Revolution and also i think from you write from the Para, from Paris 1968 being a missed opportunity for the left explain what their thinking was what your i guess i should say what you're thinking was your plural and and why the new communist movement decided that a revolutionary marxist leninist vanguard party in particular was so essential
1: we believe that the only form that a new upsurge could come in would, be, would look very much like some hybrid of the 1960s and the 1930s with, with the workplace actions looking like the sit-down strikes in the 1930s and the rest of the uh, politics looking like the kinds of uh, ghetto rebellions, uh, mass demonstrations, and so on of the 1960s. So our vision was uh, quasi-insurrectionary. Uh, we, we we didn't think this was a country for, you know, I mean, some small groups did, but this wasn't a country for, you know, guerrilla war in the countryside. The model was some kind of insurrectionary motion. We thought that they had to take that form. That's uh, That was our experience um, in the 60s, and it was the versions of Marxism, since we looked so strongly to the third world movements, and didn't pay as much attention uh, to what, in fact, people in the advanced industrial countries, what Gramsci, what the Italian extra-parliamentary left was thinking, what some of the groups in France were thinking, what the Japanese Communist Party was thinking, and what what, what some of the differences are when you live in a bourgeois democracy that has a long electoral history and electoral system and where uh people uh regard millions and millions of people regard that as the main way to do politics. So the notion that a new upsurge might take the form, for example, the way it did in the nineteen eighties, in part through the Rainbow Coalition and Jesse Jackson, that wasn't on our map in the nineteen early nineteen seventies. It got on our map in the 1980s when it was happening, Um, but it took us uh, quite a while to see that then the forms of organization that the revolutionaries might build to interact with that kind of motion were not going to be a quasi-military, mainly secretive, largely secretive uh, organization. Explain Uh, the
0: lesson drawn specifically from the Russian Revolution.
1: The lesson we took was that there needed to be a force that uh, we felt that it was outside of the revolutionaries. What was outside of our control was that uh, millions of people would rebel against their conditions. And when those conditions were bad enough and society was in crisis enough, as it was in Russia during World War One, there would be a massive uprising of the masses uh, wanting change and wanting something different. But unless there was a force that could concentrate that energy and put out there what was that it was necessary to take state power from those who had it and cha- and put it in the people's hands, uh, that that energy would dissipate. Uh, there might be, you know, bloodshed, there could be a lot of fighting, but there would not be a successful capture of state power, which we viewed as one necessary step along the road toward building a better society. Uh, we got that from our direct experience fighting state power here uh, in the streets and in other ways in the 60s. So, uh, you know, power was our agen- on our agenda. They had it and we wanted it. We thought uh, millions of people want to change, but there needed to be a vanguard force that would focus it in a revolutionary situation.
0: And you argue that these organizational insights were, were by no means all, all wrong. I think one of the most positive things that you have to say about the new communist movement is, though it was by no means an unalloyed good, was the dedication and discipline of cadre. Um, there was also burnout and way too little internal democracy and and too little pluralism, But, but explain a little bit about how leadership and cadre functioned concretely inside new communist organizations and what positive and negative lessons we might take from that today.
1: Well, the first thing I would say is that I think we were right to talk about political power. We didn't live solely in the realm of ideology and vision and theory, important as that is. We lived in the realm of political power, and it's fascinating to me that in the last two, three years, between Trump's election and Bernie's campaign, whole sections of the progressive movements, social movements, and radical movements that for the last 10 or 12 years have focused on protests, speaking truth, raising issues, are now discussing path to power, and I think that's a big advance, Uh, and that's what politics are about. Politics are addition, get more people on your side, and uh, fight for power. Uh, That, I think, is a very healthy development. The fact is, it's not taking the same form as it did in the 1960s or in the Russian society. It's taking a different form. The fight for power is obviously going to involve a lot of long-term legal struggle, electoral struggle, as well as rebuilding a labor movement, strikes, direct action. But it's a more complicated process than we thought. But the, the the gain of thinking about in terms of power is huge. Cadre, cadre, and it's the way I use the term, it means people who are dedicated to the cause and learn the skills one or, one or another, specialize in one or another, skills of the political component, that it's needed to advance a political project uh, and we uh the new communist movement created cadre uh trained cadre people learned tremendous amounts of skills, whether it was in propaganda organizing uh financing uh all how to organize marches demonstrations how to how to work in a union. Uh, Those kinds of skills, uh, how to analyze balance of forces, uh, you need people who make a big chunk of their life uh, a devotion to advancing a political project, if that project is going to advance. Now, the particular mix of skills that we taught and the ones that we neglected, I think, led us into some problems. And we also... Uh, Thinking that the class struggle was at a more intense overall stage than it was, that uh, we were not yet in a revolutionary period, but that a pre-revolutionary period might arise fairly soon, leads you to a certain pace of work and a certain attitude of the relationship between people's political work and the rest of their lives. We were off base on that because we misassessed where the society was. Because if but the revolution's
0: around the corner, you can you can rest after it's done.
1: Pretty much. I mean, or not not so far around the corner. And we also, I think, had a. I mean, the other factor there. I mean, we didn't think the revolution was coming right away, but the other factor, uh, our groups, you know, there's vanguard and vanguard. Uh, there's a grandiose conception of vanguard where you really think everything you do the ne- over the next month or the next six months, or whether your line is upheld, the fate of the proletariat depends on it. <laughs> you know, there was a little, a, a, a reasonable dose of that kind of thinking, not overwhelming, but that was present. Uh, there's another conception, much healthier, vanguard, which says you need a leading force, you need people who dedicate themselves to the cause and learn the skills of it. But they have to interact in a very flexible way with masses of people and also with people on the left who might hold a somewhat different view than they do of this question or that
0: question. In a plural, a more plural and fluid environment.
1: Yeah, more pluralist, more democratic, a little more grounded. I mean, it's one thing to think that the fate of a society might depend on what your party does. If you're the Vietnamese Communist Party in 1968, (laughs) or if, uh, you know, if you have a base, I mean, there was a period where the Italian Communist Party had two million members. uh, You know, if if you have a a social weight in a society, then you have commensurate responsibilities. When you're a group of a thousand people in a country of 200 and some million uh, a little more humility is called for.
0: There are concrete problems that came out of this, that resulted from this lack of pluralism. Not just, not only is it a problem in principle, um, if we conceive of ourselves as socialist, as also being kind of radical, small-D Democrats, but concretely, um, the lack of pluralism, you argue, meant that persistent differences of opinions in organization, which were disallowed if they persisted, could easily lead to splits when pluralism and open airing of different opinions could have led organizations to to carry on
1: absolutely i mean we we missed the boat on uh and I think this was almost completely true of us uh not not one hundred percent but w- we missed the boat on some sense of proportion over what differences really do need to lead to separate organizations for a period of time, and what differences uh, should be maintained within an organization debated and discussed. So, you know, what you really think happened between Stalin and Trotsky in 1924 or 1928, that's an important historical issue, but to draw a direct line between that and what, who can be in an organization Uh, at a, in the U S today, or even in the late sixties, that's a mistake. There are some questions that people do. It's healthier to divide over work in separate organizations and hope you come together somewhere down the road. Uh, sometimes certain questions, uh, are strategic in our period. There was at one point when the Chinese aligned with, uh, The United States against saying that the Soviet Union was the main enemy and people who supported that line began to support NATO and the U.S. military. That was a tough question.
0: And oppose African liberation movements.
1: Yeah. So that was a question that it was probably healthier for people to be in different organizations at the time because it was very important to the class struggle and it determined your direction on all kinds of issues. A lot of the other things we fought about, uh, they should could have been and should have been contained within the same organization. There's different issues today uh, that will come up on people's agenda. That you know, the SA in particular is the fastest growing, and now you know the center of gravity of people who consider themselves socialists. You know it it will have to figure out you know what what things do they need some kind of operational unity on in order to become a force in u s politics and what things can be uh internal debate discussion point of view people discuss it over beer after the meeting um and uh and that it's an ongoing debate, and you know those are not easy questions; there's not formulas for that you You need enough breath and pluralism to have a healthy relationship with the mass and be able to adjust but uh organizations that just say everything is everything and can never get anything done that's a problem too. I don't think that's the main problem Uh, we face. We certainly wasn't the main problem the New Communist Movement faced, although that was in having been in organizations like that during the 60s. Many people in the New Communist Movement reacted against that, or I should say overreacted against that.
0: One central argument of your book is that the, the New Communist Movement's lack of a social base and a class anchor fueled the sectarianism that we've been discussing. How how did the New Communist Movement lose its direct relationship to mass movements or or fail to gain one and and why did it fail to develop an anchor in a, a deep anchor in actual working class movements? You write that it was widely believed within the movement within different party building organizations that what mattered most was adherence to the correct ideas rather in a relationship to a concrete social base?
1: Well, all of the different organizations, they had some base, but their base numbered, you know, maybe in the hundreds, they might have a base in a different local union or a particular neighborhood. Uh, They had a periphery where they had skilled organizers. So every group had a little bit of a base, Uh, but a base on the scale of, say, what the Communist Party had in the 30s when it was the leadership of 11 or more of the national unions. It had 50, 60,000 members, uh, at least half of whom were workers, industrial workers. Um, that scale of base, the new communist movement didn't have. And it's a complicated assessment of how much of that has to do with the objective conditions and changes around us, how much of it was under our control and what mistakes we made. Um, So for example, uh, the new communist movement concentrated on young militant workers in the workplace and in communities. Um, That uh, made some headway there. Uh, In the 70s, a number of the organizations played important roles in struggles based in that sort of social layer And when deindustrialization starts to take off in the United States, those people are the first people fired. They have the least seniority, and they're troublemakers, and they lose their jobs. So some of the failure to have a base didn't have to do with anything mistakes. It had to do with the forces that we had targeted uh, were squeezed out of, of this institutions that we were working within. Uh, Also, many people who had been active in the late 60s and early 70s, when openings were created uh, in society, in the electoral realm and in other realms, there were a lot of people who had revolutionary ideas, but saw a chance to affect things in an immediate way, to change some policy, affect some specific thing, uh, elect a mayor in a city, uh, get a job in a certain agency that would change people's lives uh, around the housing or health or something else, and they would go that route. And we did not have the kind of organizations, this was part of our mistake then, we didn't incorporate those people in organizations because we viewed that work Principally as reformist, not just, we weren't against reforms, but we saw that as a distraction from where the society was headed if only we retained true to the revolutionary principle instead of realizing. That where society was going at that time, th- these were progressive things, and those people were perfectly capable of being part of some kind of radical organization that had a long-range vision of socialism, but was a bit more realistic about what was on the horizon for the next 5, 10, or 15 years.
0: And um, a related issue is that new communist groups preferred to set up sort of pseudo-mass organizations instead of building coalitions with actually existing mass movements because those mass movements might be led by people who are not communists. In Precisely. and in the case of the Revolutionary Union, they took over Vietnam veterans against the war and destroyed it. And something similar happened with the Revolutionary Workers League and the African Liberation Support Committee.
1: And also the Southern Conference Educational Fund, SCEF, uh in in the mid nineteen seventies. Exactly. Because there was a sense, if, if you think in the short term, uh, things are going to move very rapidly and move rapidly toward the left, even short of revolution. Uh, there's, and you think that these containers, these organizational vehicles, are going to be the inheritors of that motion. You think there's a tremendous amount at stake in being in the leadership of those organizations and shaping where this radical flow of people is going to go. Uh, if you're a little more realistic in in a certain time, given at the time we were in, and realize that it's going to be a very, pretty complicated period, that there's going to be a lot of different views among progressives, societies going through a big tr- transition, then you want to work and build some long-term relationships with other forces who don't share all of your ideas, and you cooperate in mass organizations. I mean, the new communist movement at a certain point got to the point where, you know, in a factory there'd be six different organizations, and each one would want to set up its own caucus instead <laughs> of all being part of the same wow. caucus against the, uh, you know, the more conservative elements in the union. Um so the you know, that kind of thing was a problem. It, it, but I I think what I what I tried to convey in my book is that it it wasn't a problem of psychology or a problem of lack of commitment or evil people or power hungry. I mean, you know, every movement has some individuals like that. That's that's you know, that's real. But it was a problem in how we assess the moment and what we thought was gonna happen. And you know, so when people wake up from that, uh, you know, it's it's a it's a different kind of thing. I mean, I, and, and, and today, you know, if, if people are trying to draw lessons from that today, I mean, of course, we're going to make a lot of mistakes. It's very hard to tell exactly where the country's going to go. It could go different directions. Um, and it's hard to tell where mass movements are going to go. But I think most people, certainly in DSA and I think in the left in general, you know, very few people, I don't think there's many people who think, okay, our little set has all the answers, and if only we were in leadership of all these different organizations, everything was peachy. Uh, where there are people who think that way, most folks, there's a lot more skepticism about that kind of dogmatic, correct line, a uh, holy grail version of radicalism. And it comes from a look back at the 20th century, uh, where that kind of monopoly on truth, vanguard means monolithic, single organization, one line, and often one great leader, that's been discredited. And it's good that it's been discredited. Um, And so there's a a lot more flexibility, but there's always temptation in politics. People fight for their ideas, and people get over enthusiastic fighting for their ideas. And it's not always easy to say, okay, I think I'm right. I want to advance my ideas, but maybe I'm wrong, and there's other forces out there, and they're going to be around. I'm not going, to, you know, you can't beat, you can't make them go away <laughs> through a brilliant post on Facebook. So let's figure out a way where we can cooperate, work together where we can, and debate our differences in some kind of sense of proportion.
0: This might be the key insight for this current generation of the left: the inability of the perfect post uh to uh remove one's intra left opponents from the playing field (laughs) um you touched something i want to touch on really briefly that you referred to in passing there before we move on is that there were a lot of new communists in unionized workplaces because a lot of organizations directed cadre to get factory and other jobs um Tell me a little bit about how this turn to industry played out. It happened not only in the new communist movement, but I believe Trotskyist organizations were doing it at the same time. To to what degree were real bases of power established from which communists could transform unions and workplaces? And to what extent did it all suffer from, I don't know, like a bit of kind of workerist play acting?
1: I don't think we succeeded I don't think any group succeeded on the broad level of transforming a whole nationwide, large-scale union into something very different than it was. Uh, Probably the closest to that was the changes that took place in the Teamsters Union with the rise of TDU, which some people in the New Communist Movement were part of. But to the extent there was left activism in that, you're right. That was from a different part of the left. but I think in many areas, uh, the new communist movement cadre did uh, create, uh, did play a role that made a big difference. There's a book out uh, now by Peter Shapiro from uh, he was in the League of Revolutionary Struggle about the strike in Watsonville, cannery workers strike, mainly women, Latina women, uh, and it played a very important role in terms of the whole city and community as well as at the workplace. Um, the group I was in, uh, the Filipino activists who led the uh, reform movement in the Cannery Workers Union in um, Seattle, uh, two of whom were assassinated on orders of the Marcos regime, uh, transformed that union. And now it's a key progressive force in Pacific Northwest politics with the leadership uh, coming out of that struggle. Um, and there's a couple of really great books uh, that touch on that. There's a new one called Summary Execution about the legal case that convicted Marcos. Uh, and then there's A Time to Rise, which is about the history of the collective memoirs of people in the Union of Democratic Filipinos. Um,
0: it's a shame that this history is still sort of secret, in part because a lot of the people who are now influential in their local. In their union locals that I've met over the years, who come out of uh, some sort of communist tradition and got entered, you know, their their workplace consciously as part of that, they're still not out, you know, decades later about you know they are openly progressive unionists, but they're still not out decades later about their own the own their own context of entering the labor movement, which I understand why, but but it's a shame in the sense that that there's some successes out there um, well, it, that we're not aware total, of.
1: Yeah, it's a total shame. But it's a shame. I mean, look how long it took to have a serious discussion of the fact that uh, Harold Levinson and Jack O'Dell played roles in terms of the civil rights movement. Um, or, uh, you know, uh, th- that there were communists involved in that. Uh, you know, I, I mean, the irony, I mean... Uh, you know, I'm happy with my book. I'm proud it's out there and all that stuff. It's the only one about this movement. There are other books that touch on it, but people weren't writing about it. You know, it was a a movement that grew spectacularly and then fizzled out in a relatively short time. And it was very complicated for people, especially the people who were the frontline organizers, to try to figure out what the hell happened. And it made a lot more sense for most of those folks to do what they could do to fight Reaganism and then all the stuff since Reaganism. And if they're still there, uh, if they haven't retired yet, or even many who have are still out there fighting against now, you know, the Janus decision and what we're facing in terms of the total onslaught against labor today. So there hasn't been, uh, even on the left, some kind of um you know accounting of what happened in the 70s and where where did all that revolutionary energy go because i think and if we had a full
0: it, kind of database published and this will never happen probably of every person who came into the labor movement and into the work their their workplaces through either the new communist movement or the swp we would be amazed at the long-term impact of the turned industry
1: right and the other thing is There's not as much, there's more than there were when my book first came out, but there's not as much inter-trend discussion of these things as there could be. I mean, when, you know, we find that, you know, we had a big ideological differences about different things, but there's a lot in common um, between people who were in the swp the is one or another new communist movement group the cpusa there are certain patterns that are very common and that when people who do have connections with one another and overcome those barriers talk about it's extremely interesting and valuable i mean i was lucky i went to school at the university of wisconsin in the 60s and uh friends from mine, from my SES chapter are in, we're in every single one of these groups. You, I don't think you can name a group in the Trotskyist movement, the CP, uh, the New Communist Movement, Progressive Labor Party, you name Socialist Labor Party, you name it, that I didn't know, that people that I worked with in the late 60s didn't go into. And then we have a connection because of our personal histories together. And it's fascinating sometimes when we get together across the organizational lines and talk about what all that was about. Um, but It need, need, needs to be more, but it, it's harder to do if you don't have a, happen to have a personal connection or something because of all the baggage that the left carries with it from what was a very difficult century for all of us. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should
0: be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is City of Segregation, 100 Years of Struggle for Housing in Los Angeles by Andrea Gibbons. City of Segregation documents 100 years of struggle against the enforced separation of racial groups through property markets, constructions of community, and the growth of neoliberalism. This movement history covers the decades of work to end legal support for segregation in 1948, the 1960 civil rights movement and CORE's effort to integrate LA's white suburbs, and the 2006 victory preserving 10,000 downtown residential hotel units from gentrification enfolded with an ongoing resistance to the criminalization and displacement of the homeless. Andrea Gibbons reveals the shape and nature of the racist ideology that must be fought in Los Angeles and across the United States if we hope to found just cities. City of Segregation, 100 Years of Struggle for Housing in Los Angeles by Andrea Gibbons, out now from Verso Books. I want to shift gears and talk about ideology. Many of today's budding socialists are, are no doubt Marxists, but it's really hard, I think, from our perspective now to understand this 1970s moment when Marxism-Leninism, which for many meant Stalinism as interpreted via Maoism, was considered this science of universal truths that simply needed to be faithfully and forcefully energetically applied Explain the New Communist Movement's approach to theory and ideology and your argument as to how that approach ultimately made them unable to see their own historical moment clearly and realistically.
1: You know, the New Communist Movement in general adopted the view that Marxism and Leninism did have some universal truths and that somewhere along the way— uh, those got lost. Uh, and the difference between the Trotskyist movement, say, and the what the new communist movement was, the Trotskyist movement felt that that got lost or betrayal happened with Stalin. And the new communist movement tended to think that that happened through some combination of difficulties in the Soviet Union because they were surrounded, some mistakes Stalin made, and then Khrushchev revisionism, and a general sense that it was a bit too Eurocentric. And we thought that what was happening was a revival of the revolutionary spirit from the earlier period of communism, and that the third world movements were the carriers of that revolutionary tradition. And certainly that perspective was most strongly articulated at that point by the Chinese Communist Party, which pretty much put it that way, you know, that revolutionary Marxism-Leninism had been betrayed by Khrushchev, and the Chinese were going to reestablish those fundamental truths, but take them further. Um, And that was an extremely attractive set of ideas uh, to young revolutionaries, because we felt, even if one wasn't all the way with China and had more sympathy with Cuba or Vietnam and even realized that there were some differences between those, some people in the new communist movement, you know, just were in denial that those three parties didn't all see eye to eye. Um, it, 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 it gave us a sense, we were participating in the revitalization of communism. Uh, and we look to that historical tradition as having won victories, being heroic, having fought, you know, uh, the stories of being the communist cells within the concentration camps, the defeat of Nazism, the Russian Revolution, the Paris Commune. It's pretty heady stuff if you think you're linked to all that and you're a 25-year-old revolutionary. And Marxism still was, in in a generic sense, the overwhelmingly dominant perspective among left-leaning people around the world in the 70s and 80s.
0: And were people reading Marx directly, read Marx, or were they reading it mostly as interpreted via Stalin? Because the term Marxism-Leninism itself is a Stalinist term.
1: Yeah. And uh, I I think that's uh, one of the tricky things about the new communist movement. And there you'd have to get a little more fine-tuned into different groups. I think it's true that the groups that decided it was easier to, Mao's writings were more pithy, Stalin's writings were more accessible, let's have our study groups be on Stalin and Mao, ended up with uh, shallower, at best, theoretical development in their ranks. Uh, The groups that read more Marx, uh, maybe even fooled around with reading Rosa Luxemburg, were willing to read Other figures who weren't in the canon, so to speak, uh, it tended to be a little bit different. So there's a mix there. That you know, there were a lot of capital study groups as well as study groups in Chairman Mao's Little Red Book. But but we generally did adopt this orthodox view that the, the main problem was deviation from orthodoxy. We had different orthodoxies, but deviation from orthodoxy was the main problem, and. In the end, I think that was whatever orthodoxy we picked led us into a dead end. Because while I believe that there are some insights in Marxism or the materialist conception of history or whatever term you want to use and some general patterns in history and in politics, and there's a lot to learn from uh, these figures, we're facing a new situation you know, Marxism and all other things always have to be extended. Uh, I think the notion of orthodoxy leads you more toward the kind of, you know, stick to the canon. There's a high priest somewhere who's the best interpreter, tends to lead to a hierarchical and top-down kind of approach, and then you sit at the feet of the masters to learn, you know, the true, the true creed. So I think a different spirit of Marxism um, is needed to revitalize Marxism's influence. And ironically, uh, one
0: that's a lot more in tune with, with Marx himself, because it's always shocking to me how people can be such, you know, historically have often been so so rigidly orthodox around Marxism when his interpretive method is, is so dynamic and playful, even, and so Attuned to the complexities of particular historical conjunctures,
1: absolutely. And but you know that you also have to look at American society and American culture. This is the quick fix culture. This is the if you're sick, take a pill. uh If you got a problem, you know this is the quick answer. And we were we were brought up in this society, and the idea of a quick fix, a magic bullet, a short, you know, that's you know, that that's attractive, and it fits in with all kinds of psychology that's um, part of the culture in the United States. This is not a society where a complicated intellectual culture is sort of the, you know, the nature <laughs> of the way people grow up. That's you know, an understatement. You know, if you, you contrast it to, you know, people who've gone back and forth between Italy and the United States talk about, at least now, unfortunately, most... A lot of the rest of the world, including Western Europe, is becoming more like the United States in this way. But at a certain point, there was just a very different notion of politics, of ideology, of what would provide an answer. And so it was very attractive. And especially, you know, you're talking about a bunch of people. Most of us knew people who had been killed uh, either because our friends had died in Vietnam or because they were shot in the Black Freedom Movement or one or another of the struggles. And, uh, you know, this was visceral. And we wanted to make change really fast, like young people do. And we thought we had come of age at a time when it looked like that was possible, and we wanted the fastest road. Uh, So it, it sort of tucked into our intellectual and emotional formation at a certain point but you need to combine it with a lot of other qualities that are not as easy and don't just leap to the fore really quickly. And we all have to transform ourselves who grow up in this culture in various ways. Of course, the main things that are discussed are class elitism and racism and sexism, homophobia, Islamophobia, the different ways in which people adopt stereotypes of others. But there's a whole range of other things, too, as far as how we think about ourselves in the world and as political activists, that just we don't just grow up with the right things on that. We're all products of a certain kind of thinking and behaving in the society. So, you know, we made a lot of mistakes. But uh, there's a ton of people from that movement who are still around and who are doing great things. Uh, Many of whom have gotten re-energized in the last few years. Largely, or partly, partly because of the danger that they see coming from the racist right and partly because of the inspiration they take from people of your generation, all the millennials, who are stepping forward and interested in socialism and trying to find a new path, which is fantastic.
0: One other question on, on ideology, which is, you, you, you write that the most damaging lesson of all what was taken from Maoism with its precept that, quote, the correctness or incorrectness of the ideological and political line decides everything. Can you say a little bit about Mao Zedong thought and what this formulation of correct and incorrect lines was?
1: I think Maoism was uh, tilted very strongly in the direction of what we call voluntarism. If you only had a will, you could change objective conditions almost no matter what they were. And we saw that in China with the so-called Great Leap Forward, where, you know, backyard furnaces and the notion that they were going to leap over all the industrial societies in five years or 10 years and go right to communism. Uh, It was then an element in the Cultural Revolution where a certain kind of purification, you know, if you only made everyone ideologically pure, everything would be fine. Uh, And then in the United States, it intersected pretty strongly with a sort of new left uh, culture of, you know, just will. You know, we will just, uh, regardless of conditions, heroic action and determination will change the world. So I think Maoism was, uh, and some of those precepts, I mean, Marx would never have written anything like the correct line decides everything. He was all about. He was all about objective conditions. People make their own history, but not as they choose. They make it under circumstances directly encountered, or the you know humanity only sets its questions that it can solve. There's all kinds of the threat of materialism in Marx is extremely strong to the point where there are Marxists who criticize him for being a you know an economic determinist and stuff like that. So uh, that was, I think, a problem of Maoism. Now, you know, that it wasn't only a problem of Maoism. Uh, there was an element of that in Che's thinking about, you know, uh, a certain kind of voluntarism that got him in a lot of trouble, uh, the Foco theory and trying to make a revolution in Bolivia when the conditions weren't right it cost him his life. So it, it, that was, I think that kind of thinking comes along in any period of, you know, tremendous upheaval. There's the sense that the world is changing uh, very rapidly. It leads toward, you know, all kinds of notions and utopianism and so on, all of which, you know, that plays a role. It's part of the mix. Uh, you have to dream. But um, but as a way of overall doing politics it can lead you into a lot of trouble and in the new communist movement and in different ways in the trotskyist movement you know the fetishizing the correct line you know then if things don't work out you blame the cadre you blame the masses people are backward you know if only the people were tougher or stronger we would be doing better you know that you know that's just it's not a sustainable way of doing politics
0: and ultimately explains why the new communist movement collapsed because if if there's a particular line that's supposed to be the key to everything and you're part of this vanguard party that is the the rightful possessor of that line that is going whose correct application will bring the revolution about and then that doesn't happen it turns out that the entire organization has been built on very weak very vulnerable foundations, and it just collapses.
1: And a lot of veterans of the new communist movement, especially ones who came into it after the 60s and early 70s flow, you know, socialism was identified almost completely with their own organization. And when the organization collapses, the whole socialist project looks like it's not working. It was easier for those of us who came of age in the 60s and had some experience with the broader socialist and revolutionary movement that when our organizations went into decline or collapsed or dissolved, some of which actually did dissolve after some pretty interesting and useful summation, giving people a soft landing. People who went through those experiences were much more able to try to interact with a broader socialist movement, uh and and make some contribution and and, and look back more uh critically and self critically on our histories. But it was pretty tough on people for whom, you know, the party was like the church. And, you know, if it's that's where you get, you know, a seventies version of Arthur Kessler's The God That Failed. You know, if if you have a God and it doesn't work out the God fails the whole thing.
0: Then atheism is the only option. <laughs> An argument you make, I think, a few times in your book is that the new communist sharp break with the Communist Party USA represents this larger disconnect between the communist left of the early 20th century and the communist left that emerges in the 60s and 70s, and it, that it's that if that break hadn't happened, you argue, a lot of mistakes could have been avoided. Explain how that break happened and why you think that greater intergenerational continuity could have served the new communist movement well.
1: Well, there's a specific in it general. In, in terms of the Communist Party USA, uh There was a particular edge, of course, around the Soviet intervention in Czechoslovakia in 1968, which happened at a moment. It was a huge period, huge formative time for people who were revolutionaries uh, in the United States. And the Soviet Union looked like it was, you know, a militarist, anti-self-determination power. And uh, so there was a political... Uh, alienation between the party, which was one of the parties around the world that most aggressively defended the intervention, um, and most of the new left. So there was that political difference, as well as what seemed like other political differences. Um, In more generally, which applied to the CPUSA, as well as others from the old left and then the new left. Uh, there, there's a bunch of factors, I mean, some of which have more to do with what I would call cultural in the broad sense. Uh, you know, this is also a period of the sexual revolution, uh, sex, drugs, rock and roll, uh, a whole different attitude uh, around alienation and things like that. Um, the old commies
0: and- were just put off by the new left culturally.
1: Yeah, there was a cultural gap. It was very difficult for us to sort of, you know, mesh uh, as in general, the cultures were different. Um, And then a lot of the old left uh, and not just the CPUSA was oriented toward forms of struggle, you know, either specifically trade unions or mass peaceful marches exclusively. Uh, at a time when there was much more experimentation with civil disobedience, more militant tactics uh marches and protests, sure, but with a little less rigidity than the older left, whether it be the Trotskyist movement or the communist party so there were there were a lot of gaps, and you know a lot of the uh the older left parties uh weren't um weren't very receptive to having a bunch of young feisty people in their ranks who might cause some trouble to their politics. And we were pretty arrogant and didn't, uh, didn't, um, appreciate, uh, some of the ideas and some of the long-term perspective from the old left. You know, this was the don't trust anyone over 30 generation, um, So I think there was a a level of alienation um, and we were often talking past each other. Now, it wasn't always completely hostile uh, and different individuals had different experiences and some depended on city, place, personality, but there was a pretty big gap there and both sides bear some responsibility for it. There's always going to be a certain amount of generational tension. I mean, young people want to find their own way and old people think we know shit. Uh, excuse me, I just cursed. You know, you predicted that rules, you weren't
0: going to, but you're allowed to.
1: You know, so uh, you, the old people have to. Uh, we have to have a little humility and more listening, and realizing that there's a lot of things out there that we don't know, and um, the young people sometimes uh, could benefit from being a little more. Uh, willing to look at historical experience and so on. Uh, but, you know, that's not an easy thing to manage, even when both both people coming from both of those directions, um, you know, have the best intentions and the best spirit. I, I learned a new word when I was running around with my book, yelder's. So when uh, that that you know the, there's the millennials, people in their twenties who are moving onto to the front lines, and then there's my generation, the ancient boomers, and then there's the elders, people in their forties and fifties, who have been around for a while. They're not the young generation, but they're a lot closer to the younger generation, and they've had some interaction with the older generation, and a lot of people in that age cohort are in leadership positions in all kinds of social movements. And I think that's a key generational, I mean, it, it, you know, it, I think what happens between the 60s generation and today's millennials is it, there's something to be gained there. But the key relationship is going to be between the people in their 40s and early 50s and the people in their 20s. That's that's the key relationship that's going to take it into the next the next phase.
0: And I think that is one thing that worries me about the lopsidedness of DSA age-wise, is it's extraordinarily young. I'm 35, and I am typically one of the older people in any room.
1: Well, you know, we all have a big stake in DSA going in a healthy direction. It's not all going to be sweetness and light. It's unlikely that five years from now, DSA will look exactly like it does now, but bigger. And everything will be smooth and all the different political tendencies that are in there are all just going to be harmoniously working (laughs) together. That's not the way things tend to develop. But it also doesn't have to be like SDS in the 60s, where the whole damn thing explodes and people go rancorously off in different directions. There's every basis for it to develop into a healthy organization with a certain range of opinions, working In concert where it can with other organizations that um, have a somewhat different range of opinions. And a lot depends, in my opinion, uh, this goes back to something you raised and that came up earlier in our conversation. I mean, uh, to the extent that DSA gets some roots in The working class and communities of color and it's the broader institutions, I mean, some of its most successful electoral campaigns have been in coalition work, uh, and some of its most successful grassroots campaigns, many of whom have been coalition group. I mean, there's a whole ecosystem of left and progressive forces out there, from our revolution, Working Families Party, state-based community organizations, labor unions. Work groups working around every single issue, the Immigrant Rights Movement, Black Lives Matter, Movement for Black Lives. I mean, you have a whole ecosystem out there, and some of those organizations that have been doing stuff for a while have a significant social base among key layers, so the National Domestic Workers has 80,000 members who are women, mostly women of color, immigrant women, uh, in what's slated to be the largest employment category in the United States in 2030. Uh, you have other uh, community organizing groups and labor unions, working, working America. You know, to the extent DSA builds relationships with these forces, works with the people in them, doesn't try to rule a ruin the way some of the new communist movement groups did, You get some kind of anchor, and that gives you some time and space to work out the ideological issues and the striving for theory that, of course, is going to go on inevitably. But you need that kind of anchor or some kind of roots to get that sense of proportion and to be really in touch with the moods and where U.S. politics are going to go. If DSA, and I, I hear a lot of people talking about doing that, whether it's salting in different workplaces or building coalitions, working long-term with particular movements, if it goes that route, a lot of the, you know, it's it's got some really good prospects.
0: The last thing I want to ask you about that I think holds a lot of lessons for us today is how to think about relating Simultaneously relating to politics as they exist and politics as we'd like them to be. And Alicia Garza, in her foreword to the new edition of your book, highlights just that tension on the left between the notion that we should be pursuing the left wing of the possible, um, not coincidentally a phrase of Michael Harrington, uh, who was a leader of a very different DSA, um, and the other contrary proposition that a key task of the left is to expand the boundaries of what is considered possible. Um, And she writes that these are, quote, pulls towards surrendering revolutionary politics in order to gain temporary influence on the one hand, or remaining pure but marginalized on the other. And I think this is just the balance that DSA and many others are trying to strike right now. And just what that balance is, is of course the subject of of a lot of the debate, you write that the new communist movement didn't even really acknowledge that this tension was a problem to be solved. Um, But ultimately, as as the new communist movement collapsed, many of you went into the the Rainbow Coalition, a a movement striking within the Democratic Party that many post party building new communists were, were deeply involved in. It was a movement that you argue was, I think, betrayed by by Jesse Jackson and others opportunistic incorporation into the Democratic Party. I, I wonder if you could say a little bit about what lessons we can take from the new communist movement or post-new communist movement uh, experience in Rainbow, what it might tell us today about this very complicated balance between engaging in politics as they exist and maintaining independent organizations that can push the horizon of possibility beyond what it is at present.
1: I don't think I would ever use the word betray about Jesse. Uh he made a calculation at the tail end of the rainbow that there was more to be gained uh by becoming a certain cutting a certain kind of deal with the powers that be and getting a certain kind of position within the Democratic Party than there was at that moment of building the rainbow as an independent social force. Uh, I don't, I didn't agree with his decision and the group I was in at the time struggled against it within the rainbow. But I, I think it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I I think that there were reasons why he made that calculation that had to do in part with the weakness of the left of the period. This was the period right around the time of the collapse of the Soviet bloc on Tiananmen Square and the weakness of the revolutionary forces that were within uh, the Rainbow Coalition and the forces to his left. So I, I'm I'm generally I generally don't use I'm not wild about terms like betrayal in politics. They do happen now and then, but uh I I wouldn't put it that way. Um I think the reason a lot of people from the New Communist Movement went into the rainbow and what we can learn from that experience. Uh, one of the things that the New Communist Movement really always felt was that the it, the connection to motion in among the especially oppressed, particularly the Black community in the United States, uh, is always uh, a positive plus, and that the Black community is the most progressive community in the country it's based upon a certain location in u.s history and political economy and that you're not going to get anywhere in society uh long term unless the black community is part of if not the leadership force uh in moving that forward so that was a big part of the reason we went into the rainbow and we weren't um we, we, we didn't believe that it was automatically bad. In fact, it seemed uh, people will grab onto the levers that are available to try to struggle uh, before they will uh, turn to riskier and harder roads. And the lever of the Democratic Party, the opportunity opening was there for the black community and Jesse's political program uh, to make some headway. So uh the problem and uh I think for the revolutionaries within that um we thought that the Jackson movement represented a kind of broad front it was progressive uh it would it had a mass base it had a mass base among the constituencies that were the most important and our job was to build and expand that coalition, especially at a time when the working class and black community and all other communities were under attack from Reaganism. Uh, and at the same time, we had a responsibility to uphold a revolutionary poll within that and try to win people in the Rainbow Coalition and the masses uh, toward a more revolutionary vision we our maximum hope was that that, that form would continue for some time uh, we didn't think that um, that million by that time it was the eighties and we didn't expect a revolutionary movement of millions in the short term um, I think our we our organizations were really weak, and one of the points by that time and one of the points I made in my book was that if we had not frittered away through sectarianism and other problems, the energy we had in the early 70s, we might have gone into the rainbow the period of the 80s with a much larger and stronger and more united left, which would have both pulled that coalition to the left and also been a pole of attraction for people within that coalition who wanted to make a long-term commitment to revolutionary politics. Uh, And I sort of think the same situation with some differences is happening today. There's a alignment of forces that are sort of trying to build a progressive bloc. They're using the Democratic Party ballot line because that's the way to reach, for two reasons, it's a way to reach millions of people and also because of the extreme and special danger posed by the Trump administration and the fact that the other political party has been captured by white male grievance and white nationalism Um, and is trying to roll the clock back to the 1920s. So uh, I don't have any problem with that. I think it's almost sort of, you know, that part is almost as, you know, it's like it's inevitable. That's where millions of people are going to go. They, they want to stop Trump and they want to do it in a way where they can build something that they are part of, where they're not just beholden to the. Rahm Emanuel's of the world. So they're going to go into groups like Indivisible, Move On, Our Revolution, you name it. Uh, for a revolutionary force to be in there with them, uh, not telling them that what they're doing is irrelevant or we're indifferent to whether Trump is reelected, but we're part of that surge. And then we have to build socialist or revolutionary organizations uh, and you know, that have our own finances, that have our own independent point of view, that do our own campaigns, that educate people, uh, and that talk about the future. And, you know, there's going to be pushes and pulls and mistakes in both directions. Sometimes we'll fight too hard against people within that broader front. Sometimes we'll make too many concessions. But I think for the actual realities of US politics, that's more or less in the ballpark. Uh, I, I know I know that's one of the controversial points within DSA and within the left, but I think most of the people who come out of the new communist movement are more or less in that place.
0: Well, Max Elbaum, thank you very much. Thank you. Max Elbaum is the author of Revolution in the Air, 60s Radicals Turned to Lenin, Mao, and Che from Verso Books. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that all great world historic facts and personages appear twice, the first time as tragedy, the second time as farce, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Logan Dreher. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So, to spreading the word to your friends, please make propaganda for us. And also do find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a huge help.